0: But we, we, at least we don't have anything in writing which which clarifies the status, and that is, is it has been a bit problematic in the past.
1: Right. Uh, do you have the letter from her?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's, uh, we've seen, we've shown it to our lawyers, and they say it's not, okay. it's, it's not of any use, because, no, because she doesn't assign copyright. It just says anybody can look at it. It's not really about publication, because I suppose in the 50, I think it was, 56 they didn't really think of <laughs> that people would come up show up who want to edit and publish these things.
1: In last week's episode we looked at Eisler's early work on the history of religions. from the comparative study of cosmologies in sky cloak and heavenly canopy, belt and mantle for short, to the comparative study of fish symbolism in Orpheus the Fisher. This week we will see what happens when he comes into close contact with two much more famous Jewish scholars of the German-speaking world, Gershom Scholem, who would become the world's most famous scholar of the Kabbalah, and A.B. Warburg, a wealthy, brilliant, and psychologically unstable art historian in Hamburg. There are gripes, grudges, and personality conflicts, as well as an argument about whether a scholar can wear an evening jacket to give his lecture if his frock coat gets stolen. I'm Brian Collins, and this is A Very Square Pit, a podcast about Robert Eisler. This is Episode 4, Women's Coats and Beach Cabanas in Light of the History of Religion, or The Nebbish Philologist. In the years after the war, the Eisler family fortune had disintegrated, although they still held on to a villa near Munich that belonged to Eisler's mother. A professor named David Dobb, who also referred to Eisler as a scholar and a madman, recounted an anecdote about how Eisler scraped by in this time of economic distress. According to Dobb, Eisler was making money by inviting his friends out for a weekend at the villa and then suddenly handing them a bill at the end of their stay. I don't know whether this is true or not, but accounts all agree that, starting around 1918, Eisler was no longer living the life of a millionaire's son. But he was still full of scholarly ambition, and he was expanding the scope of his research projects to include the development of writing systems, Jewish mysticism, and early Christianity. Despite his publications and his connections, Eisler could not secure a teaching position. And this probably wasn't because of his scholarly eccentricities or any notoriety he acquired from the incident in Udine, but rather because he was a baptized Jew. Getting baptized was offensive to many Jews at the time because it looked like Eisler and other secular converts were abandoning their community in order to spare themselves from anti-Semitic discrimination. Writing in 1980 about his meeting with Eisler during this period, Gershom
2: Scholem explained the situation like this. He had had himself baptized for the love of the daughter of a well-known Austrian painter, but despite the gesture... His various attempts to secure a teaching position had always been thwarted. The Gentiles were made uneasy by his markedly Jewish appearance, and the Jews by his apostasy. In his dealings with me, Eisler was completely Jewish. His store of Jewish jokes and anecdotes was virtually inexhaustible, and he felt free when he was with me to pour out that Jewish heart, which he kept carefully under wraps when dealing with non-Jews.
1: Eisler first met Scholem around 1919 through the well-known Jewish philosopher Martin Buber. He had tried to publish an article in Buber's journal, Der Jude, German for the Jew, but Buber told him that the journal could print articles by Jews or by Gentiles, but it could not print an article by someone like him, a baptized Jew. To better understand the situation Eisler was in during this period, I spoke with Amir Engel assistant professor at the Department of German Literature and Language at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and the author of Gershom Scholem, an Intellectual Biography. Here he is discussing the significance of Deriude, the journal that wouldn't publish Eisler's work.
3: The Deriude was, was, was a, a project that existed in a time before the State of Israel, and then the question is, what does it mean to be a Jew, a German Jew, and so forth, was, had, had a certain meaning, and therefore it was very difficult. I mean, the agenda of the journal... Was, it wasn't a scientific journal. It had to do with, it was a cultural project. And therefore, uh, it was important for Buber and these people around him that people, um, as you'd say, put their money where their mouth is. So they don't just speak about Judaism, but they are Jews and are willing to go to the shop and buy the Deyuden, right? That they weren't shy of saying, yes, this is the kind of journal I'm reading, and this is who I am.
1: The year before he first met Gershom Sholem, Eisler had founded the Johann Albert Wittmannstetter Society for Kabbalah Research Incorporated, named after a 16th century Orientalist and collector of Kabbalistic manuscripts, and he appointed himself the secretary. Eisler had also persuaded ten scholars, including Buber, to be on the board. But in reality, Eisler himself was the only active member. Eisler must have already known something about Sholem's reputation, since he was friends with the Assyriologist Fritz Hommel who had been Sholem's dissertation advisor. For his part, Eisler was overjoyed to be in the presence of a true scholar of Kabbalah possessing a mastery of Hebrew. Sholem was charmed by Eisler, although he was somewhat hesitant about casting his lot with him. But Sholem did agree to help with some Talmudic literature Eisler was examining. Sholem recalls the impression Eisler made on him at the time.
2: In general, Eisler's eloquence, as fantastic as his education, was somehow not quite serious. I, at any rate, had never before come across such a compelling, yet at the same time suspiciously glittering kind of erudition. He was, incidentally, quite without rancor at being challenged, a trait I found particularly endearing, especially since I was bound to detect the regrettable gaps in his Hebrew sooner or later. He once said to me, "'I suppose you think I'm a nebis philologist?' but he really did not seem to take any offence at my judgment of him. His fanciful synthesis overcame all the hurdles of historical criticism, and the one thing that could truly not be said of him was that he was lacking in ideas, and ideas, moreover, in such diverse areas as the proto-Semitic inscriptions in the Sinai Peninsula, the Greek mysteries, the origins of the gypsies, the history of money— the origins of Christianity and many others, which had wanting in common, they were all rich enough in unsolved problems to allow the widest possible scope to his particular genius for synthesizing. Hearing him lecture, one could not help but be overwhelmed by his rhetorical gifts. Reading his writings, one was left speechless by the sheer wealth of quotations and references, frequently to the most obscure and far-fetched sources imaginable. Eisler's opponents, and he did not have many defenders, though a few of them were quite influential, called him, with slightly veiled anti-Semitic innuendo, a speculator who had accidentally strayed onto the field of scholarship. In short, Eisler was unique in his way. Unfortunately, no publisher who had ever brought out a book of his would have any further dealings with him, for in the course of reading proofs, he would invariably rewrite the book and make it at least twice as long.
1: These passages are probably the best-known descriptions of Robert Eisler that we have, but they need to be put into context. Sholem was not an objective observer when he met Eisler as a young student in 1919. Or when he started writing about it decades later, after he had become a well-established figure in the field of Jewish studies. I asked Professor Engel to explain something about Sholem's mindset at the time when he first met Eisler.
3: Um, so this is a time of great uh, uncertainty for the young Sholem. He's still quite young. The end of nineteen seventeen, he's with uh, his good friend Walter Benjamin in Bern, or just outside Bern, in this little town called Mühl. And he um, is not sure what to do with his life. Um, uh, And he's not sure where to go. There's all these things that he's interested in. He's certainly a a Zionist. He's certainly interested in Buba. He's completely taken by the figure of of, uh, Walter Benjamin. Um, But he's not at all sure where this all kind of goes. he has these deep doubts about the, the, the youth movements, the, the, sec- the First World War changes his alliances completely because people he trusted then say, oh, let's join the war. And he thinks that's terrible. He's not quite a communist like his brother. So everything is, seems to be in flux. So this is 1917. Very shortly after the war ends, he moves back to Germany and he decides to pursue a, a dissertation project in in um, orientalism he first thinks to his, his original dissertation topic is abu lafia which is a very complex mystical thinker uh, but shortly thereafter he, he goes for a much more conservative topic which is the translation of the book, of the book the bahir the bahir book which is considered one of the first books of Kabbalah. And I think uh, when he meets Eisler, he's right at the moment where he thinks to, establishment, to establish himself as a researcher in the field of Kabbalah. Now, this is a very long shot for the young sholem. The idea that somebody can actually make a living by studying this stuff seems un- extremely unlikely. The field of Jewish studies was was completely nascent. There were hardly any... Positions for professors for teachers in Jewish studies at German universities. There was no Hebrew university. The idea that there will be a Hebrew university was unimaginable at the moment. Uh, but even for the very very small number of, of of scholars in in Jewish studies, there were there was hardly any room for such a field like Kabbalah. This was considered kind of the underbelly of Jewish Jewish history. Scholars knew of it and read Kabbalistic books, but this was hardly a central matter. The problem is that many scholars or, or, or many people tend to kind of uh, imagine that Cholem was always a giant. Like so many other people, he grew over many, many, many years. And he started out in like publishing in obscure places and moving on to better and greater things. He wasn't um, unusual.
1: In his memoir, Scholem describes how Martin Buber told him to go visit Eisler at the Villa near Munich and to read Weltenmantel.
2: I took Buber's advice, having first obtained a copy of Eisler's book. This inspired me to add his name to the catalogue of the imaginary university Walter Benjamin and I had founded the year before in Switzerland with a course called "'Women's Coats and Beach Cabanas in the Light of the History of Religion. "'There followed one of the most bizarre encounters of my life "'when Eisler invited me to visit him in his little villa on Lake Starnberg, "'which dated from his days as a millionaire's son. "'During the inflation, Eisler, like almost everyone else, "'had lost everything except for that house "'and lived by taking in paying guests from England.' I was taken first to Isler's library, crammed to the ceiling with scholarly works about everything under the sun. A set of ten quarto volumes bound in green Morocco and bearing the title Erotica et Curiosa caught my eye. Ever industrious, I pulled out one of the volumes to have a look, and it turned out to be a dummy, with cognac glasses and bottles of whiskey concealed behind it. Eisler received me with open arms. After all, I was, so to speak, the angel sent from heaven to breathe kabbalistic life into his paper society.
1: In fact, Eisler was responsible for publishing Sholem's dissertation, The Book of Bahir, a historical text from the early days of Kabbalah, in 1923. This book, along with Sholem's second book, Bibliographia Kabbalistica, published in 1927, comprised the first, second, and only volumes ever published in Eisler's edited series, Sources and Studies in the History of Jewish Mysticism. And not only did Eisler publish Scholem's early work, he also introduced him into the circle of the wealthy and highly influential A.B. Varberg. The next big meeting Scholem describes having with Eisler was when he and his friend Walter Benjamin paid him a visit in Paris in 1926. In 1925, Eisler had taken a diplomatic post as a deputy chief of the International Institute of Intellectual Cooperation in Paris. The IICI had been created at the invitation of the French government to work with the League of Nations International Commission on Intellectual Cooperation, the ICIC. The position had been secured for him by the classicist Gilbert Murray, who was influential in the founding of the ICIC. Murray was an early member, along with Marie Curie and Albert Einstein. Unfortunately, Eisler accepted the position and moved into a large rented apartment in Paris without first obtaining the permission of the Austrian government, who lodged a complaint with the League of Nations. Eisler stayed in the post for two years, although he is not listed as holding the position in which he was hired in any official records. It is not clear to me what the exact objection was to Eisler taking this position, but for some reason, the government of Austria did not want Eisler representing it in Paris. This is how Scholem describes the meeting he and Benjamin had with Eisler in 1926.
2: The visit we paid Eisler in the deserted rooms of his luxury apartment, the official people had already dissociated themselves from him, was a depressing experience for us. Eisler, however, cheerfully discussed his great discoveries about the person and role of Jesus as the leader of a political revolt, the subject of the Cor Libre he was then giving at the Sorbonne. At that time, he was developing the ideas he later wrote down in his voluminous work, Jesus, the King who did not rule. It was an eerie scene. Benjamin, who had a special feeling for situations of that kind, was spellbound. We also attended a session of Eisler's course, which was taken by Solomon Reinach's pupils and friends. The highly unchristian hypothesis with which Eisler took up Kotsky's theories on the origin of Christianity in an uncommonly ingenious self-assured manner, supporting them with unexpected interpretations of equally unexpected sources, was received with considerable acclaim by the freethinkers of the Ernst Renan Circle. But we realized that we were witnessing a sad turning point in the life of an unusual human being.
1: There's a lot of ambiguity and ambivalence in Gershom Scholem's writings on Eisler. His dry wit sometimes comes across as harsher than he might have intended. And all the writings are published decades after Eisler's death. So I wanted to ask two scholars who have done significant work on Scholem what their take was on this relationship. First, we'll hear from Stephen Wasserstrom of Reed College, who we interviewed back in episode one, and then from Professor Engel. With regard to Scholem and Eisler, Scholem was an interesting, tolerant personality in various respects, and he also had a fondness—or you might say a weakness—for for curious personalities and curious scholarship. Um, And I tend to think that he at least thought of Eisler somewhere along the lines of a character who was was learned and curious and and had, in many ways, a lot of the right kinds of erudition, but was somehow didn't have the personality to be a a straight European-style scholar.
3: I think, uh, I, ju- I just want to say, I think Eisler is a very interesting figure in this, in this perspective because Eisler is, is not a hack for, for Scholem. I mean, he, he never says terrible things about, about him. He finds him a little strange, but, and he's not quite the, philo- he doesn't quite do philology in the, in the sense that he, he imagines, but he's not a hack.
1: Sholem and Eisler stayed in contact until 1938. Then, in 1946, after eight years of silence, Eisler sent a 250-page manuscript to Scholem outlining his plan to implement Zionism and solve the Palestine problem. Here is how Scholem describes the plan.
2: Eisler had been pro-Zionist for years and had written to me that he intended to leave his library to the University of Jerusalem. Now, in 1946, he came up with a proposal that was truly original and all the more so amid the anti-Zionist outbursts of the period. A committee consisting of three Anglican theologians and three strictly orthodox rabbis to rule on the credentials of all Jews living in Palestine. Those who were not deemed kosher enough to be allowed to remain in the country as pious worshippers were to be given the choice of returning to their countries of origin or, if they wanted a Jewish state, of taking possession of the second district of Vienna, the Leopoldstadt, as well as the entire city of Frankfurt am Main. These territories were to be evacuated by the Germans and placed under international guarantees as a Jewish state.
1: Scholem mailed it back with a one-word reply, enough. Eisler and Scholem's relationship was a complicated one, as you can see in their correspondence, which is now held with the rest of Sholem's papers in Jerusalem. But it's worth noting that Sholem held on to a signed photo of Eisler, and the only reason that it's on Eisler's Wikipedia page now is because Professor Engel was kind enough to send me a scan of it. As far as I know, it's one of the only two photos of Eisler in existence. The other one, which we talked about a bit in an earlier episode, is held in London at the Warburg Institute. After the break, we will take a look at Eisler's relationship with the founder of that institute and another truly unique thinker, A.B. (laughs) Varberg. If you have a significant number of books in your house or in your office, and if you use them for research, you know that organizing them is a problem. Alphabetical order doesn't work unless it's the authors who are important to you. For instance, you want books by and about Foucault or Kant together under F and K, respectively. But you may have purchased a book about cave painting because you needed to understand the subject. You will forget the title and the author eventually, so how will you remember where on the shelf you put it? You need to dedicate some part of your shelf space to prehistory or art or caves or something where you can keep it for future use. And if you know anything about the Kulturwissenschaftliche Bibliothek Warburg, which I will simply call the Bibliothek Warburg from here on out, you probably know about its unique method for organizing its books. Instead of using the Dewey Decimal or some other system of classification, the Bibliothek Warburg is organized into four floors. The first floor is dedicated to what Warburg called orientation, which includes philosophy, religious studies, and history of science. The second floor is image which includes art history, archaeology, and early cultures. The third is word, mainly ancient and post-medieval literature. And the fourth floor is action, which includes history, social history, history of festivals, theater, and technology. Warburg's intellectual project was dedicated to finding connections and continuities and to uncovering the history of thought. This is how he put it in a famous speech that he made in 1912.
2: I hope to have shown how an iconological analysis can range freely, with no fear of border gods, and can treat the ancient, medieval, and modern worlds as a coherent historical unity, an analysis that can scrutinize the purest and most utilitarian of arts as equivalent documents of expression, and how such a method, by taking pains to illuminate one single obscurity, can cast light on great and universal evolutionary processes in all their interconnectedness.
1: Looking at Eisler's work in Mantel* and Orpheus the Fisher, as well as the multiple directions his work was heading in after the war, it makes sense that these two men would have a lot to say to each other. But that's not the way things turned out. You may remember that back in episode 2 we learned about the Orpheus lecture Eisler gave at the Bibliothek Warburg in December of 1922, which was memorable enough for A.B.'s wife Mary to write to him about it.
3: Eisler was enthusiastic about the library and the reception he had in Hamburg, but Fritz Saxl told me about the incident in which Eisler had been involved in Udine 14 years ago. The whole story overshadows Eisler's academic career. And he feels totally isolated.
1: In the rest of this episode, we will focus on Eisler's relationship to the Bibliothek Varberg. Varberg himself died in 1929, and the library was moved from Hamburg to London in 1933 to escape the Nazis. That's where the successor institution is now, currently operating as the Varberg Institute. Now, a little more background. In 2010, two years after I first discovered Man and Wolf. I gave a paper on it at the American Academy of Religion's annual meeting in Atlanta. It was a terrible paper, and I'm glad I never published it. But back then, I was still on the hunt for some archival material on Eisler, and had just discovered that there were five boxes of Eisler's papers stored at the Varberg Institute. But it wasn't until 2014, the summer after I finally landed a tenure-track job with a research budget, that I was able to actually go to the Varberg. I was on the way to India, and I stopped for a few days in London. I stayed at the Tavistock Hotel about two blocks away, woke up every morning and ate my English breakfast of beans on toast, and then stayed in the reading room from opening until close. I went through as much of the archive as I could. That's where I met Claudia Vedipol, who has been the archivist there since 2006. I am not an expert on A.B. Varberg or the Hamburg circle that he was part of. So I called Claudia up for this podcast and asked her to explain to me what the Hamburg Circle was.
0: Sometimes it said Hamburg school, but it was certainly much more circle than a school. And it was really a group of scholars circling around Warburg's institution, which was the Kulturwissenschaftliche Bibliothek Warburg, um, which existed before the university was founded, but the, the circle really came into being with the foundation of the University of Hamburg in 1919. Um, It was a group of scholars, again cross-disciplinary, younger scholars, mainly Jewish, and they found this this library which had the money from one of Warburg's brothers, Felix Warburg from America, could keep buying books even in the the difficult years of the early 1920s. So it was a, a great resource for research But what was more important for the circle that they shared these ideas of cross-disciplinary research in general terms, art history, cultural interest, history, intellectual history, philosophy. And I think the term symbolic turn for what they were interested in, really in the afterlife of antiquity in terms of mythology and symbols. So that is really what was shared by all of them. E.B. Warburg himself was in the center. And then there are, of course, uh, Fred Sachsel and Gertrud Bing working in the institution. And the other important people, which I would count to the Hamburg Circle, are the art historian Erwin Panofsky, the philosopher Ernst Kassira, and in the slightly wider circle also Edgar Wind, who was a philosopher and art historian too, and Raymond Klebanski, who was a philosopher and came through Kassira. Um, to the Warburg Library. They didn't have their own rooms and they were holding their seminars and classes and lectures at the KBW, which until uh, 1926, of course, was in Warburg's house. Um, So it was really the, the meeting point for all of them. And I think lots of things happened there because the family actively wanted the connection between the Kulturwissenschaftliche Bibliothek Warburg and the new university, really spending money, investing money into that. And Zaxel had this money available um, to install or to well inaugurate, is a better word, um, the lecture series we are talking about and to have money available to get also published with these series. So it's the lectures and the Studien, the studies, which were specialists, sort of, yeah, studies itself, in itself. And the lectures, of course, were always the proceedings of the lectures that had been holding one of the academic years. Um, so there was a lot of support. There was quite a good amount of money to be spent on all that. And part of it was also that the family really put pressure on Fritz sachsel that he does his habilitation, which was necessary for him to get the Venia Legendi and to teach at university. So really to have an influx of a younger generation using the library and really promoting Warburg's ideas and Warburg's method. And in that way, really yeah, built up a strong connection between university, for which Warburg had been, um, had been lobbying since the early years of the 20th century. So there's a long prehistory of establishing a university in Hamburg. In 1919, it's finally... Uh, It finally happened when Babuk himself was not really
1: there. In the cold open to this episode, you heard some of a conversation I had with Claudia at the beginning of our interview. And in the last episode, you heard an interview I had with Robert Eisler's closest living relative, Rich Reagan, his great nephew on his wife's side. I had known of Rich's existence for a long time, ever since I discovered the letters between Lily Eisler and her niece, Rosalie, Rich's mother, held in the archives at Swarthmore College. But the reason I finally reached out to him was this. After my second trip to the Warburg Institute, I was interested in the possibility of reprinting some of the papers they had. Claudia told me that they were not allowed to do that because the letter Lily Eisler wrote to them when she deposited her late husband's archive there was unclear about who would own the copyrights. The Warburg needed a family member to step in and sign a new agreement. Just before COVID-19 broke out, Rich agreed to do that. But I guess it's all up in the air now like everything else. But this whole incident raises a big question in my mind. Why did Eisler not give his archive to the University of Jerusalem, like he told Sholem he would do? Let's look at some possibilities. First off, if Eisler was talking about donating his library to Jerusalem around the time he first met Sholem, that's the same period in which he told Martin Buber that he was planning to reconvert to Judaism. That never happened to my knowledge, and he probably just said it in an effort to get published in Buber's journal. This business about Jerusalem may have been part of a larger attempt to shake the stigma of having been baptized. I should note here that when he applied for employment assistance from the English Society for the Protection of Science and Learning after being released from Buchenwald in 1939, Eiser listed himself as liberal Yudish on his application form. But that's another affair we will cover in a later episode. It's also likely that the big library that Scholem saw in Munich was left behind when Eisler fled to England. I should also point out that it was Eisler's widow Lily who did the donating, not Eisler himself. But surely he must have discussed this with her at some point in his final years. As we will see in a later episode, he was prone to dramatically predicting his imminent demise in some of his angrier letters. It's also worth noting that on the death of A.B. Varberg, the man who called him a fraud and a faker, Isa requested to be allowed to write his obituary. I haven't read it, but I assume it is glowing. We will look more closely at the relationship between these two men in a bit. But first, I'll let Claudia tell you about what kind of issues Warburg was dealing with.
0: Warburg was probably bipolar. That's probably what we would say about his mental condition these days. They mm-hmm. thought he was schizophrenic, but then in 1923, it was proved he wasn't, so he was like, And it was called like a a severe state of manic depression. depression. So we would now say, I would think um, bipolar. And he really suffered a psychosis really at the end of the war. And we know in November 1918, he he had a breakdown. He had to be removed from his family. He was in different clinics. So from... November 18 to some point in 1920, he was in and out several clinics. And then in 1920 to 21, he was in Jena, and from 21 to 24, he was in Kreuzlingen. Um, so he was really, from 1920 onwards, he never really came back physically to his library. It's true. He wrote, like, a daily letter, be- like, we know there's a daily letter between A.B. Warburg and Mary Warburg, his wife, so in both directions. And Sachs saw it really very much as his task to to keep him afloat of what was happening and getting. It was, there was a two-way sort of system. It was on one, hand hey, he, he sought reassurance for all his, the decisions he was taking and the transformation of the library but on the other hand, he saw that that was the only way to 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 have a chance to see Wabo getting better and getting over this psychosis, to to involve him in in thoughts of that kind, and to make him yeah think about his institution and his scholarly work again. So Zaxel was the big mediator, and it's said and probably rightly said that he had responsibility in a very positive way for Wabol's that he really overcame that that illness and, and was able to come back to Hamburg and have another five years of fruitful scholarship.
1: Eisler's first contact with the bibliotheque seems to have come in 1921, when he ordered Warburg's book on Martin Luther and Albrecht Durer to review in an English journal. The next year, Fritz Saxel had picked up a copy of Orpheus the Fisher and invited Eisler to give a lecture, offering to pay his expenses. As they were setting the date, Eisler began to try Saxel's patience with his frequent requests. First, he changed the date of his lecture, forcing Saxel to postpone another scholars. Then Eisler wanted Saxel to set up two more lectures for him, one on ancient seafaring and another on the history of money. He seemed convinced that the second topic would be of special interest to Varberg, whose brothers were major figures in the world of finance. Multiple times, Eisler asked that his book about the history of money be shown to the bankers in the Warburg family. This important and fascinating book, incidentally, has never been translated into English, which we'll talk about in the next episode. Then Eisler wanted to arrive in Hamburg a day before the lecture, and then stay for a day after. He wanted someone to meet him at the train station, and he wanted to wear an evening jacket for his lecture because his frock coat had been stolen. On the back of the postcard on which Eisler made all these requests, Saxel scrawled the German phrase meaning dreadful rubbish. And when it came time to publish his paper in the Proceedings of the Varberg, Eisler continued to give Saxel problems, first by insisting that he needed more space than anyone else to communicate his ideas. Saxel responded.
2: To Robert Eisler, January 17th, 1924. I find the text of your Orpheus essay too long. I am not certain whether I can publish it. Also, Vorburg has a research request for you. He wants to know whether the fight of dragons was turned into an astrological symbol in Babylon, whether Tiamat was turned into a star, and whether Scorpio had anything to do with Tiamat or Nirgal. Fritz.
1: Then another conflict arose in February, but it's hard to figure out exactly what it is just from reading Saxel's side of the correspondence one thing is clear. Saxel's not happy.
2: To Robert Eisler, February 27th, 1924. I am very angry that you have contacted Konrad Ziegler. Budgetary questions should not be aired with third parties. Teubner has also informed me that you have returned your proofs to them. Are these identical to the ones you sent me? If so, it is pointless for me to correct them.
1: Then in April, Saxel laid down the law, telling Eisler in no uncertain terms that he would not be getting any extra space to publish his work on Orpheus.
2: To Robert Eisler, April 2nd, 1924. You absolutely must limit your article to no more than 200 pages, regardless of whether the article by Franz Campos is in the same volume or not, and regardless of who pays for the publication. In my absence you were given more space than anybody else, and you need to content yourself with and respect the arrangements I have made.
1: And then came May.
2: To Isla Robert, May fifteenth nineteen twenty four. I write to inform you that I can, after all, publish your paper as a separately bound volume as Part 2 of Proceedings 1922-23. I have given instructions to Teubner accordingly. Fritz.
1: Not having looked over any of the other correspondence that Saxel had with any of the other speakers from the Bibliothek Warburg, I really had no point of comparison. So I asked Claudia if there was anything unusual about the exchanges between Saxl and Eisler.
0: By the tone of how was reported to Warburg, it sounded to me that this was a bit exceptional, that he demanded or asked to be picked up at the station, and, um, and that he had many vi- uh, meetings also with other scholars while he was in Hamburg. And the tone in which it was communicated to Avi sounded to me that this was a bit unusual. It's also, it, you can feel, so you've probably also read these letters, that Zaxel thinks he's asking a little too much because immediately also he to give lectures. He's the only one who gets this extra volume because probably doesn't find any other place to get his uh, research published. So he's a, he is obviously a slightly different case than all the others. And also mainly these the speakers of the early years are Hamburg University teachers, because that was the idea of this lecture series, to really establish and um, yeah this new relationship and also give them a forum to speak. Yeah. Writing to
1: Saxel from Bellevue Clinic, where he was recovering from his psychotic breakdown, Warburg vehemently opposed Eisler's invitation. Probably because of how hard he had to work to establish the relationship between the bibliotheque and the newly established university, Warburg was concerned with projecting an air of professionalism. In his letters to Saxel about Eisler, Warburg wrote that he did not want to attract quote-unquote such people and provide a stage for immodest dilettantes. This exchange between the two men, in which they also discuss the Picatrix, an 11th century Arabic book of magic and astrology, paints a pretty clear picture.
2: To Fritz Saxel, May 13th, 1922. I do not like to hear that Robert Eisler is invited to give a lecture. His work is only a bluff. Please send me a list of participants, though, and tell me of the date of your habilitation. I also want to hear something about the Picatrix lecture. I hope I will be allowed to see you and Max Adolf soon.
1: In his reply a week later, Saxel has to point out to Varberg that although he may not like his personality, he has to admit that Eisler is often right when everyone thought he was going to be wrong.
2: May 20th, 1922. I am forwarding the draft of the Picatrix lecture. The lecture will be more general, but the book is much more detailed regarding the links which lead from Proclus, Iamblichus, etc. to Picatrix. Reinhard has accepted a post in Frankfurt, and he, along with Ernst Cassirer and others, wants to hear a lecture by Eisler. Remember that in the case of the lion-headed goat-legged statue in Modena that Franz Cumont identified as a Mithraic figure, and Eisler identified as the Orphic god Phanes, Eisler's research proved to be right, and Cumont's wrong. Yours. Fritz.
1: When he wrote to Varberg describing Eisler's lecture, Saxel nicely summed up the mixture of suspicion and fascination that Eisler tended to provoke in his scholarly audiences.
2: Regarding Eisler's lecture, I can say that he is a man of great scholarship, but not self-critical enough. It was the first time that people have clapped spontaneously after the lecture, Something which did not happen even after Ernst Cassius.
1: What's really striking to me is that a criticism of Eisler coming out of this group of Jewish scholars is that he was too Jewish. And that was an embarrassment to the rest of them. Using the Yiddish, Varberg complained about Eisler's excessive chutzpah. And in the same letter that I quoted earlier, Mary Varberg wrote to Abe that Eisler looked very Jewish, but she supposed that could not be helped. In the summer of 1926, Eisler was being considered for a job at the prestigious Heidelberg University. In seven years, they would be burning books and holding Nazi rallies, but that was still a ways off. Eisler didn't get the job, and there's a clue in A.B. Warburg's correspondence about why that may have been. In a letter dated July 28th, the Heidelberg historian of philosophy Ernst Hoffmann, who was himself eventually driven out of his named chair by the Nazis' racial purity laws, confessed to A.B. Varberg that he was opposed to Eisler getting the job. He explained that anti-Semitism was already on the rise in reaction to the political agitations of the pacifist mathematician Emil Gumbel. And Hoffman thought bringing in another Jew might stir things up even more. The fact that Eisler had converted to Catholicism does not seem to have entered the picture at all. As we have seen in this episode... Eisler's complicated relationships with Gershom Scholem and the Homburg Circle really shine a light on the outsider status he occupied with regard to religious, social, and scholarly boundaries and the ways in which his work elicited such a wide variety of responses from A.B. Varberg's sputtering indignation to Gershom Scholem's amused puzzlement to the spontaneous applause he received after his Orpheus lecture a first in the history of the Bibliothek Warburg. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Amir Engel, Stephen Wasserstrom, and Claudia Vettipole. For this episode, the voice of Robert Eisler was provided by Caleb Crawford, with additional voices by Brian Evans and Kiara Ridpath. Throughout the podcast, I've received assistance with engineering, recording, and editing from March Wascheleski and Logan Marshall. The music is Shibboleth Beseda, recorded by Ayakum Shapira and his Israeli orchestra. Special thanks also go to the Vorberg Institute and the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. Partial funding has been provided by the Ohio University Humanities Research Fund and the Ohio University Honors Tutorial College Internship Program.
3: un colpo schlag a